Well, this morning's topic is one that without fail, when I think about it, uh, I am always reminded of a song uh, by a group called the OJs. Uh, if you remember, the OJs uh, were a popular so uh, group in the 1970s for sure, a number of popular hits there. And if you have a chance to, to look online, I, I, I think in the worship uh, program, you'll actually see the title of the sermon. I think it might be listed there. It says, Money 5X, because when I think about this topic, I think, money, 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 money. And so I start automatically thinking there. And some of you might think, well, what if he would have named it Money 3X? Well, then we would have gone to ABBA and been money, money, what is it, money, money, whatever it goes. That one says money three times. So uh, however way you want to think about it, that's where my mind goes the minute I think about talking about money here. Money is our topic. That's what we're talking about. It wasn't going to take long in a series on generosity to get to a Sunday where we're going to have to talk about money. We've arrived at that Sunday. And of course, if surveys from wealth management groups are correct, this is going to be one of the more uncomfortable topics for us to have as Americans. Americans don't like talking about politics, we don't like talking about religion, and we don't like talking about money. This morning, we're going to talk about two of those topics, religion and money. So here we go, because we need to talk about it. Although the surveys show us that it's not a comfortable topic to discuss, if scripture is correct... It is a necessary topic for us to look at. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, for instance here, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And these words follow a caution to not store up for yourself treasure on earth, but rather to store treasure in heaven. So we'll want to get this right. That's going to be the important part. As we ponder this text, we want to make sure that we understand how to get money right. But what does getting it wrong look like? Well, we know that unchecked greed, for sure, would be getting it wrong. There's actually a writer, Philip Kane, who wrote in 2005 for the Chicago Tribune. He noted uh, that unchecked greed can, like a cancer, kill the thing it feeds on. And so we know that uh, when we look at, uh, particularly as unchecked greed, when we look at greed and, and the power of greed on our lives and the way that affects things, we live in a system that benefits from some level of greed. When that goes unchecked, it can destroy the very system. And we see that happening um, in various sectors and, and all the time in our, in our news. Another part is the overly clenched hand. So we might think that greed is this uh, grabbing and accumulating as much as we can. But now imagine the overly clenched hand here. We call this in English a miser when we talk about the one with the overly clenched hand when it comes to money. And you'll notice that the word miser draws from the same Latin source as the word misery that they have a related uh, root there. The OJs, of course, will fill out in their song, to return to them for a moment, they'll actually fill out the categories even more for how do we get money wrong. They say, for the love of money, people will steal from their mother. I hope you're not stealing from your mother. It says, for the love of money, people will rob from their own brother. For the love of money, people will lie, Lord, they will cheat. For the love of money, people don't care who they hurt or beat. And I think we know that. We know that from news, we know that, uh, hopefully not, but some of us do know that by personal experience, that getting money wrong can lead to all kinds of evils, uh, not only in our own hearts, but also that are perpetrated against ourselves or others. And that, of course, is just part. All these items are just part of the ways that we can get uh, money wrong. And in your own experience, you could probably imagine uh, even more places. But our text this morning offers a different way. You might have heard that in the scripture reading. 
provides a different way forward for us to consider, a different way for us to live. In fact, I'll add here a better one. And it begins with a statement that we oftentimes associate in our culture with a negative connotation. In verse 6, you reap what you sow. That's how it begins, or at least something akin to that. What Paul actually says here is addressed in the underlying Greek in a way that draws attention to it. So if you're reading it in the original Greek, there'd be like a spotlight would shine, boom, right there on that text. And the writer wants to make sure that folks hear when they read that text, the very next line, this very important line about reaping and sowing. And the technique that he uses is one that's called an ellipsis. And probably a way for us to understand that is a way of omitting certain words uh, there, but you understand that they should be there. In English, we use what's called the understood you. So you think about a sentence that has the understood you in it. We don't put the you there, but you know that the person's addressing uh, a person uh, there. It's kind of that same type of idea. The sentence itself uh, translates, and the King James Version actually picks this up. It says, but this I say, if you take the Greek there, and note here, I say is actually not in the Greek. It starts out with just, but this. And so it's drawing attention for us as a reader to this to say, look at this point. Look at what I'm about to say here. This is important. Paul wants them to remember this piece. And so what does Paul want us to hear first and foremost? That first line. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Eugene Peterson, in his translation, The Message, he talks about the categories of stingy planter versus the lavish planter. But the principle here is all the same. It's the same type of idea. Generosity is clearly in view here. And the received benefit is in proportion to the size of the expression. Admittedly, not too, uh, not, not a few, I'd probably say here, unscrupulous sorts throughout church history have exploited this particular text. Have exploited it for their own personal gain, promising hearers that if they were to give to the preacher or give to the particular ministry, that they're going to somehow receive in return uh, some kind of financial gain. You're going to get a return on your investment. All you have to do, and they use words like this, you need to plant a seed of $1,000, and you'll receive that and more so uh, after you give that. And of course, you can see how that might get people pretty excited about wanting to donate. I'm not going to say that this morning. I don't think that's what Paul is saying to us here this morning. That's not what Paul has in mind. In fact, I would offer here that I think that's quite wrongheaded. Uh, when it comes to what the scripture has in mind for us. Instead, what Paul has in mind for us is that the gift would be voluntary. As Paul's talking to the Corinthian church here, he's talking to a group that's already aware of the blessed gift that was to be given because they've already committed to it. All Paul is doing is reminding them of that gift. And so if you look at verses 5 and 7 here in our text, you, you see that that gift has already been promised. And we understand that Paul then is not extorting them here, but rather Paul is exhorting them to do what they already had in their heart and their mind. He does so for good reason. We know in our own uh, world today, a lot of research has been done. Uh, we heard some of that about Notre Dame in the children's message. But a lot of research has been done about the benefits of being a generous person, being financially generous uh, and being generous with your wealth. 
In fact, I was reading an article this past week uh, that was produced by a newsletter from The Motley uh, Fool, and they actually identified the eight biggest benefits of being generous. Uh, here, the, here are these benefits that they say here. Greater satisfaction with life, more friends, and stronger relationships with the people you know, a more positive outlook, and higher self-esteem, happiness with your career, better physical and mental health, and satisfaction with what you have. You notice on that list there, there wasn't, you're generous because you're going to receive all that money back and then some. The then some here in this picture are all kinds of expressions that come in the generous life and our finances, and many of those have little to do with finances themselves. But note the benefits that Paul offers here in our text, that Paul gives to us as the Christian giver. The first one is this, and we see this in verse 8, that God provides. One of the great fears of being generous, particularly as it relates to our finances, is that we'll end up not having enough. We'll end up uh, coming up short when it comes to providing for our own needs. Of course, that fear was one that was expressed by this Corinthian church. If you look back at chapter 8 in verses 12 through 14, you can read more about that. That was something that they expressed, that they had fears that by giving such a, a big gift that they had already committed to, that somehow that would leave them at a place of having great need. They wouldn't be able to meet the needs and challenges within their own life. And so I want to be careful here at this point to say that that fear is not without merit. Right? We're not talking about uh, going along life and pretending like that doesn't exist. That is a very real fear that exists. But at the same time, I don't want to discount the fact that many things that I call needs are not actually needs. I like wa binge-watching shows, but my streaming apps are not something I need. All right? I don't need my subscription to various apps uh, in order to live a fulfilled and generous life. And I might add here that I probably would live a better life uh, if I wasn't binge-watching many of the things I watch. What our writer will get uh, here, or get to here, it echoes something that, that Jesus says in the Gospels, particularly when Jesus encourages uh, his followers not to worry. Uh, if you look in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, instead, strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. These things include needs like what we'll eat, what we'll drink, what we'll wear. These are things that Jesus says and what are picked up in that text. And so trusting in God's provision, Paul notes in our text, God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. That's in verse 8. But what's obscured there in our English translation uh, is this. And knowing that the, uh, the word order in Greek is important, the very first word in that sentence that Paul puts in the Greek is able. Paul wants us to hear loud and clear in that verse that God is able. That God is able to address our fear, even when that fear is about meeting the needs that we have in life. And note the use of all and every throughout that text. And God is able to enable us then, the one who is able enables us to live generously. And that will be doubled down in verse 9 when it talks about God's covenant faithfulness. 
So God provides the provision for us. That's the first thing Paul wants us to see. The second thing Paul writes about here, we'll see in verses 10, first part of 11, and verse 12, it's that it's not only providing for our needs, but there's even more. Bishop Paul Barnett, uh, who is an Australian bishop, observed here, there are few evidences of God's power so impelling as the transformation from tight-fisted meanness to open-handed generosity. God's grace revealed in our lives, expressed in God's faithfulness to us more than meets what we might call our need. But it transforms us. God transforms us into generous agents who now participate in the new life that God is bringing into creation. So when the apostle ponders God's faithfulness to us, he doesn't merely just picture one who, of course, as I said, is meeting our needs, which by itself would be gracious enough. If that's all God did was just to meet our needs each and every day, that would be gracious in and by itself. But rather we hear God who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply, will multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That's verse 10. This is an exponential blessing. And here what's happening is a blessing that intends to contribute to the care of those in need. So we're provided with more when we are generous so that other people and their needs can be met. This idea of being blessed so that you can be a blessing, that sounds like a topic that, and at least certainly a theme in Scripture, that doesn't begin here. Remember the call of Abram back in Genesis. When God calls uh, Abram, who will later become Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, that promise is, I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. In Paul's day, the generosity of the Corinthian church would supply the needs of the saints. We hear that in verse 12. And particularly those who've been displaced and impoverished, perhaps by local persecution that they've experienced at different pockets around the Roman Empire. But the earliest Christian community is one that we've already heard in Acts. A few weeks ago, we heard in Acts chapter 2 was one that was committed to the community as a whole. We see that they are a church that comes together and has all things in common. Acts chapter 2, verse 44. And so this idea of being a church that would support other churches in the world uh, was one that was common to that earliest expression of Christianity. They're able to address the needs of others to address the needs of that church of sharing resources and yes that sharing of resources is done by the generosity of the members and as you might suspect what we're tapping into here is a sense of equality amongst God's covenanted people which Paul will address early in this letter we'll talk about how we are together as God's people in chapter 8 now, before you get worried here, I know sometimes when we start talking about uh, equality of this sort, particularly when we talk about finances, there could be a little bit of a worry here that we're somehow going to now espouse a, p a very particular political um, or economic system that would upend anything, any expressions we might see here in the Western world. Let me stop you here before you go there. 
That's not what we're doing here. And that's not what Paul is saying at this particular point. But what Paul is saying here and being very clear about is this. The church takes care of the church. We take care of our sisters and brothers. And we, have, we know of sisters and brothers around the world who could use some financial help from a very generous uh, church in other parts of the world. We happen to be in a place where we can be very generous because we've received much. We know of sisters and brothers around this world uh, who are struggling uh, financially and could use the help from their kin, and that's us. And so when we do, we offer these things in a way that Paul will say here, where thanksgivings abound. And so here's the third thing, the third benefit that we see, and I, I title this one, Praising God. See this in verses 11, the second part of verse 11, the second part of verse 12. That idea of thanksgivings abound. That's quite something. That is quite something. Think about the increase here of thanksgiving, which is clearly seen. First of all, you think about the person who's giving the funds, the one who's able to be generous. You think about how, how good you feel when you give those things and how thankful you are that you have those resources to give them to others. That's the first stop of thanksgiving that Paul has in mind, that the one who's giving generously is feeling that and is able to offer their own thanksgiving to God for providing and giving to them not only the provisions for the day, but even more so they can live into that. Paul also counts himself in that group of those who are thankful as the one who's going to come and collect the gift and take it to the sisters and brothers in need. And so he's celebrating as well. There's another layer of thanksgiving in that. So now you have not only the one person with the gift who's thankful, you now have the Paul who's in ministry who's able to now distribute those gifts to those who are in need, and he's offering thanksgiving, oh, by the way, for that very same gift that was given. So if you imagine the first Thanksgiving gives $5, they celebrate the $5. And now Paul celebrates that same $5. But there's a third group out here. This group that exists of those who are the recipients, and they receive the $5, and they give expressions of joy and thanksgiving. And now you can see what that looks like. Thanksgiving abounding from each group over this same $5. Just multiply that. 500, 5,000, 50,000, 500,000, 5 million. And the thanksgiving abounds over and over and over, over that same gift. This picture of movement of thanksgiving, this idea of praising God that is expressed by the generosity of the saints here, is one that's picked up in Psalm 67. You think about this movement from being one who's a recipient of God's goodness, of God's grace and generosity, and then how that expression finds blessing out from there. Psalm 67 gives us a template uh, for that. And it shows us this ripple effect that exists of thanksgiving. This idea of blessing and this wider thanksgiving that then comes from the group of giver and recipient. Notice how the psalm begins. Very common expression that we know all the way, that goes all the way back to the beginnings of Scripture. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. It's an early blessing. We have that out in Numbers. That's verse 1 of Psalm 67. We could end there. We could stop right there. May God bless me. May God's face shine upon me. And that's it. Your religion could end right there. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't stop there. Abraham didn't stop there. The saints of old didn't stop there. The psalmist will go on to say uh, in verse 2, and this is that 
this is that idea that we have of that ripple effect. It talks about the underlying purpose of blessing, that God's way may be known upon earth, God's saving power among all nations. Again, blessed so that something could happen outside of myself, that God would be known. And then wraps it up in verse 3 with this, this response, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. And you see that movement, being blessed for a particular reason that has a global perspective in mind, which is then responded to a massive thanksgiving, a massive global celebration. When we are generous, we invite the world to sing. Some of you are thinking about a Coke commercial right now. All right, that was to teach the world to sing. What happens here is when we're generous, we invite the world to sing, singing praises to God and offering many thanksgivings. So with such a great outcome, what may be keeping you and me from being these kind of generous people? What's keeping us from being those who step up to the plate here to be generous? Our text today has already made clear that this is part of the Christian life. That this is part of the way that we're to live as Christians. And that God, who is able, enables us to give. So what we have, we've received from God. And now we're called to give and be generous. So what's stopping us? Well, perhaps we might have convinced ourselves that we don't have the means. I don't have the means to be generous. Maybe uh, many of us are saying, I'm not a high-capacity earner. I don't, I don't have huge amounts of money. I would love to be generous if I, if I was super wealthy or super rich, then I would be generous. And I would give and, and offer this kind of blessing and create this kind of ripple effect of offering praise and thanksgiving to God. But I don't have the means to do that. What, about, what am I supposed to do? How do, I, how do I live into that? Well, let me invite us to consider Jesus' words in Luke chapter 21, also picked up in Mark chapter 12. Remember that, that moment, Jesus uh, challenges us, challenges givers of all levels in that particular story as he praises the generosity of a poor widow. A poor widow, you'll remember she came and she offered what accounted to a meager offering. Think about the people of that day who were offering gifts and offerings, and she gives hardly anything. But she had hardly anything. And she gave from that place. I think we hear in that text a challenge for us at all levels, whatever our capacity might be. You don't have to be of great means to give generously. Because we see Jesus praise somebody who had almost no means for their generosity. I'm imagining that one of our greatest obstacles here has far more to do with our attachment to possessions. I know in my own heart that that seems to be a battle that rears its head all the time. I want to live a certain way. I want to have a certain lifestyle. I want to have certain items. And we're not, we're not alone in that. Over the years, I have seen people end up sending more money to pay their cable bill than they have given to the ministry and the gospel proclamation in their local community. I've seen that. I've seen people invest far more in apps and cell phones and all kinds of latest technology than they've given away or donated to care for the needs of others. And I've heard people lament, uh, say, I, I wish I had more. 
I wish I had more resources to be able to respond to those needs. Meanwhile, producing the latest gizmo or gadget that they picked up. I was on a mission trip one time with a young person who lamented the fact they didn't have enough money uh, to pay for portions of the mission and support kids that were, we were caring for. They wish they could give more money to help those kids out. And then they showed me their new uh, watch, their Apple watch, and said, look what I bought. I think that's probably more the challenge we fall in here in our own world. Matthew 19, we read of an encounter where Jesus challenged a young man with the notion that this young man's attachment to his possessions was hindering his ability to enjoy the life that God wanted for him. If you know the story, uh, this young man, his wealth had impoverished his spirit. He was wealthy in the bank account, but his spiritual bank account was bone dry. And Jesus challenged him on that. And Jesus showed him the way to life. Instead of following Jesus, the wealthy young man went away grieving. I don't want any of us this morning to go away grieving. I don't want us to be like that young man, but instead to embrace a more generous life. So, how do we do that? Well, first of all, we need to take an inventory. We need to take an inventory. I think it's helpful for us to, to take a personal inventory and ask the question, what am I spending my money on? Where's it all going? Sometimes we forget where it goes. We're paying bill after bill after bill, and we forget what, where that money was going. So take an inventory. Spend some time as a family. Spend some time as an individual in the coming week and just think about what, what is it that we're spending our money on? Um, how much is going out the door on different things? Maybe during the pandemic, you've had a certain way of living, and now as we move uh, away from that or as vaccines make it possible to do more, uh, we need to look at new ways of doing life. And so it's a great time for us to take that inventory. So ask the question, what am I spending money on? And what am I not spending money on that I should? What are things that I felt God has called in my heart to participate in financially that I haven't been able to because I've been paying all this other stuff? And ask yourself, what are those places as well? I had a third question here. Am I generous in the way that I support my local church? Am I generous in my contributions and support here of the ministry here? That's an important question for us to ask regularly. It's a question that I ask myself. It's a question that my wife and I talk about. How do we support the church? What does that look like financially uh, for our, our contributions here? We believe in the gospel. We believe in the ministry of this congregation. And stuff. We want to put our money uh, in that, invest in that as well. So I encourage you to ask that same question within your own family. Uh, what is your support uh, financially look like here at John Knox. And I want to end here with a story of a person that many of you are probably uh, familiar with as a way of encouragement uh, for us as we think about what it means to live the generous life, particularly as we talk about our finances. Maybe uh, familiar with the story of billionaire Chuck Feeney. If you don't know him by name, you're probably familiar with Duty Free Shops. He co-founded those. Uh, and he made a fortune, <laughs> to say the least. He made a fortune off those. He was a very successful business career, but he made a decision that's uh, so unusual uh, that uh, folks like Warren Buffett and, and Bill Gates uh, look at him as being a hero uh, in their lives, an inspiration, a role model uh, for them. He said he was going to give it away, the money that he made, this huge amounts of wealth, uh, this huge success, he was going to give it all away, and he was going to do that in his lifetime. So here he was. He had something to the tune of over $8 billion. $8 billion. And he said, I'm going to give it, give it all away, and I'm going to do that 
in my lifetime. He was able to accomplish that. Last September, he gave away the last of the money uh, from that commitment. He actually had to close down the foundation because they were out of money. They'd given it all away. Uh, $8 billion gone. And he was now living on far less. In fact, when this interview uh, that was done that I was looking at this last week was being conducted, he was renting an apartment, a small apartment in San Francisco where he now lives. Um, person living a very uh, meager, simple life, uh, even though he had been super, super rich. Here he was living a simple life. You know, in that interview, he's, he's speaking of that, and he says this, and this is words of encouragement for us this morning. To those wondering about giving while living, this idea that you'd give away all this money in your own lifetime, not waiting until after you die, not giving away half of it after, after you die or anything like that, but giving away it while you're alive. He says this. Here's what here's his line. Try it. You'll like it. <laughs> that was his words. Try it. You'll like it. Friends, to live generously and to sow bountifully. I think the Apostle Paul would say the same thing to us this morning. For each one of us as we think about what does it mean to live a generous life with our finances. To give it away. Trusting that God provides for us that God will provide even more for us to give, and in the end, that it will turn this world upside down of offering thanksgiving and praise to God. Try it. You'll like it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you on this morning for your great love for us, for your great provisions to us, and the way that you care for us day after day, year after year. And so, Lord, as your as your followers, as Jesus' followers, as those who put our trust in you, as well as those who might be listening this morning uh, who are sticking their toe in the water and, and wondering if the Christian life is the right life for them. We pray, Lord, that you would instill in each one of us a deep sense of generosity. Help us, Lord, to be faithful with our pocketbook. Lord, help us to, to do what is right in this area. Help us to step out in places in this next week where we might live differently, that it would, might make a huge difference in this world, which you created and which you love. We pray this in Jesus' name.